Heavenly Father, Lord, we come this morning needing a word from you. Lord, I ask that you would open our ears, that you'd open my mouth. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have been going through our sermon series on the book, or not a book, but the books of the Minor Prophets. Um, and we, this is the last one in the sermon series, right? So we've been kind of digging through this and learning about these kind of underused, underread parts of the Bible. They're often called minor, so sometimes we don't think they're important. But really, they were just named minor because they were shorter. Um, but if you ask my opinion, this week we're talking about the book of Zechariah. I like want to put in a vote that we just consider Zechariah a major prophet. It's like 14 chapters long. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's all that minor. <laughs> um, but we've been kind of digging into this, and Zechariah is the one that last prophet that we're going to be talking about in this series. And it's a it's a unique one. It's one of the two minor prophets that takes place in a different time period than the rest of the ones we've been talking about. We've been talking about all these other minor prophets, and they've all kind of had very similar messages, right? The message has been, stop doing the wrong things, follow the Lord, or bad things will happen, right? That's, that's the message in, in just a sentence right there. Um, and they've all been kind of sounding the warning gong, saying, you guys are off track, you're not following the Lord, you're worshiping idols, you're practicing unjust practices, and you're, you're mistreating people. All of these things that are displeasing the Lord, you're refusing to follow him, and it's going to result in exile. And that's what most of the minor prophets are kind of saying, and they all exist in that time period. But today we're going to talk about Zechariah. Zechariah happens after all of that came to pass, right? So like the minor prophets weren't just like, you know, they weren't crying wolf. They weren't just like, psych, God changed his mind. They were like, no, like this actually has happened. You guys didn't change. And you went into exile. And now the people of Israel are coming back from exile. They're returning to the land and they're coming to Jerusalem to a city that's in shambles. The walls are worn down. Nobody's lived there for years. The temple is destroyed, and they're coming and having to rebuild, almost start from the beginning again. And that's where we like find ourselves, and is in this place where they're even a little bit discouraged. Like coming into a place that's just entirely in shambles, like what are you going to do? Which thing do you fix first? Right? And so it has this unique perspective. Now, I want to take kind of a pause, and I want to show you guys a video, um, and for a couple of different reasons. But I'm going to show you guys this video, but I'm also going to show you guys this video to highlight something that we have here at Conduit that maybe you've forgotten about or maybe you haven't heard of before. Some of you will remem remember that last year, around this time, we were talking about a thing called Right Now Media, and if you've not heard of Right Now Media, Right Now Media is like Netflix for Bible study stuff, right? Um, and just like Netflix, we buy it, and then you guys all share our password. Uh, but like it's legal. That's like, that, that's like how it's supposed to work, I promise. <laughs> but no, it's something that we as a church sponsor that we get so that you guys can have free access to. And it's got thousands of content. It's got Bible study tools for your own 
personal benefit. It has conferences. Um, it also has children's material, some shows and things like that, all free. And if that's something you want to take advantage of, it works on any smart device, um, you can sign up for it. If you're on our Church Center app, if you click on the Sign Ups button, you'll see a Right Now Media thing, and you can sign up for it, and we'll make sure to get your email submitted to that, and you'll get the information for that. So if that's something that you haven't taken advantage of, or maybe you haven't heard of since you've been, been coming here, because we don't talk about it all the time, just want to make sure that you guys are aware of that. And that whole preamble is simply to say, I'm going to show you a video that is featured on that platform, uh, something that is available to you guys that can be of benefit and personal use to you. I'm going to be showing you a video from something called The Bible Project. Um, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, if you have, chances are you probably heard me talk about it, because it's like, I love recommending this resource to people, because it is such a good resource. I haven't found a resource that takes such high-level content, content that like I studied in college, and then articulate it in a way that is understandable, approachable, and accessible. And it does through through animation, right? So it's not like just a boring guy talking at you. Um, but it's this, and so the Bible Project has its own website. All the videos are free on YouTube, but it's also on Right Now Media if you ever want to take advantage of that. And they have a sermon, they have a series of videos that they've done, and they've done a summary video of each, each book in the Bible. Um, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to take just a couple moments, share with you the video that summarizes the book of Zechariah, because I bet they can do it more entertaining than I can. So let's, let's let that watch real quick. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem, and we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. 
The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up. Is now the time for the messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket, and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. The third and sixth visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes. But then those are taken off and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who's leading the temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God, which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah, and a group of Israelites come, and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer and the book just moves on. 
And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters one to eight. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters nine to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel. And then he's rejected first by his own people, but then also by their leaders who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds. And it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new Garden of Eden and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple bringing healing to all of creation. And that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. Right? <laughs> Somebody took a big sigh. <laughs> now you see why I said this book should be a major prophet, not a minor prophet? Right? Like, that's a lot of stuff. There's a whole bunch of weird dreams in there, like people being carried away in baskets and stuff. Um, um, so we can all just go home now, right? <laughs> just kidding. But uh, do that just one to highlight that resource for you. That is something that's available to you. If you're ever wanting to do, you're like reading a book of the Bible and you're just like, what is this talking about? It's a great resource to go to. It'll give you a big overview, kind of help put some of the themes in the kind of context. It's a helpful resource that I use because they do a great job. Um, but also, I just wanted to kind of give you guys that big picture of this book because, like, if you were to pick it up and, like, read it, like, the first time I read through it, I was like, what is happening? Um, like, what are all these shepherds doing? What is all this talking about? And so the book of Zechariah has this, it has a different tone than the rest of the minor prophets we've talked about. All the other minor prophets have this tone of repentance, right? Kind of a wake-up call. And the book of Zechariah has this tone of encouragement, of saying, don't, don't lose heart, don't quit. There's something better coming. And that is kind of the heart of it. I want to take a moment and look at Zechariah 8.13. Um, 
This is right in the middle of the book. And Zechariah here in this passage um, kind of highlights what I feel like is the sort of the general tone and theme of the whole book. So if we look here at 8.13, it says, Just as you, Judah, and Israel have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. This is what the Lord Almighty says, Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judea. Do not be afraid. These are things... Uh, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love or to love to fair, swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. And so here is this again. He says, do not be afraid. Have peace. It's kind of a strange verse because he's using the awful things that happened as a proof of the good things that are going to happen, right? So all of the people who were in Jerusalem, like a vast majority of them would still remember when Babylon came in and destroyed the city, right? Some of the oldest people who were back in Jerusalem remember, and they're just like, oh, this is where this market used to be. Oh, that's how the temple used to look. Look how destroyed it is. These are a people, this is a generation of people who remember what Jerusalem used to look like, maybe as kids, and what it now looks like now. They know the stories of what happened, and they're like, yeah, the, all those minor prophets, all those things that Zephaniah and Hosea and Habakkuk like, talked about, they, they actually happened. I guess we maybe should have listened to them, because everything they said came to pass. And so Zechariah is here and he's reminding you, he's like, that happened like the Lord said it was going to because you didn't repent. So take heart and now encourage yourself and know that when the Lord says that he's going to bless you, that he's going to bring about restoration and a rebuilding, that should be an encouragement. We should have a greater amount of confidence in that. And that's kind of the the general theme of Zechariah is this, continual reminder to strengthen your hands because they were they'd been there and they were just like you know like do we do we really need to build the temple like maybe we should just focus on building our houses right like let's maybe losing focus a little bit maybe like like there's so many other things to be focusing on like the temple will never be as good as it used to why should we spend our time in it and Zechariah is coming he's like reminding them he's like don't don't make God's second fiddle again. That's what your ancestors did. I want to flip back to chapter 1 of Zechariah and start in verse 2 to kind of bring out sort of my main primary point for today. And that starts in chapter 1, verse 2 of Zechariah. It says, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Remember last week in Zephaniah. Therefore, tell the people... This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. 
Do not be like your ancestors, whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did my word and my decrees, which I commanded my servants and prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Again, it's a lot of replying, but it's this this reminder, it's this saying, don't follow the ways of of your ancestors. And it kind of leads to the main point I want to talk about, and that is that God calls us to break free from the past. Right? He's there, and Zechariah is calling out. He's like, you guys don't have to live your lives like your ancestors did. Just because that's the way it played out before doesn't mean that has to be the way it plays out again. There's this beautiful promise in the beginning of, that, of those verses. It says, repent, turn to, return to me, and I will return to you. Get this beautiful image of God just just barely restraining himself and saying, like, just, just turn around and take a couple steps towards me and I'll be right there, right? And he has this calling out, and I think it's a helpful reminder for us that God is calling us to break free from the past. I'm still relatively new to the area. You know, I'm, I've been here a year now. Um, I Previously, I lived in Ohio, and then I lived in Chicago for a number of years before I ended up coming here. And I've never really lived in a community of this size, like a small town. I've either been kind of rural and disconnected from any sort of uh, community center or any sense of community, or I've been in like a big city. And so coming here and kind of being in like a, um, I think I, I saw on the internet there was like a term for this type of area called micropolitan. Um, <laughs> I find that funny because it's not quite a small town, but it's kind of like a small town, right? Um, and it's been interesting, like some of the things I was reflecting yesterday about, like what are the things that I hear and notice that are different here than I've noticed in other places? And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you might know if you live in a small town, if people refer to buildings by what they used to be, not by what they are anymore. <laughs> Right? Like, I don't know how many people have like, told me about this restaurant, but they can't remember the name of the restaurant. It's just the place that used to be Yum Yums. But like, I think that was two restaurants ago. Um, like, that's like this, like, that's just this, like, you, you're no longer, like, I have a friend who lives in South Dakota, and they're like, oh, it's by the pink building. Well, the pink building was torn down 10 years ago. It doesn't even exist anymore, but people still talk about it, right? So, then I'm like, I'm like, that is so... Weird. <laughs> like, like, why don't we just call it what it is? <laughs> but it's kind of this small picture of like, of like the past is always present with us in this community, in our community, right? If you talk with somebody long enough, you talk with somebody more than 10 minutes, you can probably find that you have some mutual acquaintance or maybe you're related to each other in some random way, right? Like, <laughs> like um, that's just kind of true. Um, and so, but like, the thing about living in a small town is that so often our stories, our family histories are well known, right? We get to see 
the impact of generations and family stories in a more clear way in a community this size than we do in other communities. In communities that are less disconnected, nobody knows the stories. In a community that's so big, you can't possibly decipher or know people well enough or long enough to be able to see how things happen from generation to generation. And so here, I think we can just see the picture of of how the problems of one generation are so often carried on to the next generation. And we can begin to see these stories of, of redemption, but also of, of heartache. And, you know, something that I like so passionately want to just tear down is just this idea that like this area, Jamestown, like just is just an awful place to live. I love it here. I, I really do. This is my favorite place I've ever lived. Um, like the first, the first night I was here, this was the night I moved into my apartment. I'd forgotten a couple things, like a shower curtain. Um, <laughs> things you don't think to pack. Um, so um, I, I went to Walmart with my brother in Lakewood, and we we're checking out and making small talk with the cashier. And, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I just moved here. I'm buying all this random stuff because I, you know, didn't bring the bring the stuff, you know. Um, and she was just like, oh, you just moved here? We're from, like, Ohio. She's like, oh, did you buy or rent? I'm like, I'm renting. She's like, good, then you can leave quickly. <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh. That, wow. I was excited to move here. <laughs> but it's, there is this, this, there can kind of, like we all, at least I feel it, I think the rest of you feel it too, that there sometimes can be this fog, this haze, this heaviness over, well, that's just the way things are. It's never going to get better. I just don't expect good from people. It's just, just continuing that cycle. We're not going to have a better tomorrow. Ah, things kind of just suck around here. All things I've heard people say. I'm not like not making any of that up, right? It's this, it's this belief that just because things have been a way, that that is how they're going to continue to be. And I just want to say that's just a lie, right? It does not have to be that way. And God calls us to break free from the past, right? I think that God calls us to have compassion on the past, healing in the present, and hope for the future. Right? I think that's what God is calling us to. Not to demon, not to say that like those things that happened in the past, the way I was raised, the awful things that have happened in my family are the worst things ever, but to say, no, let's have compassion. Let's realize that those that have gone before us have, are human, that they've made mistakes, that they're they're understandable. I don't have to be angry and bitter about a thing anymore. That I can practice the gospel. I can find forgiveness. And when I do that, I begin to let go of the past. Begins to be less of a rock I'm dragging around with myself over bitterness and resentment. And I begin to let go. I begin to have some forgiveness and compassion on that past. I begin to experience healing in the present. I begin to imagine what are the small things the small things I can begin to do today 
that are healing, that are helpful, that are hopeful, begin to think. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking about the future. I'm thinking about my next generation. I'm thinking about what am I doing that's building a better thing for tomorrow and is choosing, choosing God's narrative for this community over the lies that we seem to want to tell ourselves. It's something where, like, like I am not unaware that there are innumerable hard stories in this room. Stories of pain, stories of disappointment, stories of heartbreak, stories of hurt or abuse, substance abuse. Those are things that are real. Those are things that we in this room have experienced and know. I don't want to pretend that those things aren't real. Right? I don't want to pretend to put on rosy colored glasses and say, oh, those were just fine. Right? Like, I'm not saying that. Like, we're not saying that the hard things in the past suddenly become unhard or unbad or undifficult. We can't change the nature of what they were. They exist. They happened. But they don't have to be the thing that defines me and where I'm at and where I'm going. It begins to be something I can learn from. I can begin to grow from. And it's the place where God is calling us into. God is saying, turn to me. Return to me and I will return to you. It is not... God's not saying, you got to get all the way over here. He's like, no, just like, come on, take a couple steps and find how much I will close the distance. And, and it's something where I, I almost can kind of feel a little bit of anger over. Like, because I, I so long to see people drop the things that we're holding on to. I, I so long to see healing, and, and, I, and I don't want the past to continue to justify the present and predict the future. I, I just don't think that's what God calls us to. If I didn't believe that there was possibility of change and newness of life and redemption in people's lives and in communities, I wouldn't be a pastor. Because that's why I'm here. That's what I, I want to spend my life doing, is speaking the truth of God's word, talking about how it's all about Jesus and his good news changes it all. So I want to look briefly at Hebrews chapter 12, because it just this passage just says it. Hebrews chapter 12, so the other end of your Bible towards the back. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for, joy, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Let us throw aside everything that hinders. Throw aside the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance. It's this call to step forward, to begin to run a race of faith. It's not an easy one. It doesn't say it's going to be easy, but it says it's going to be one that's worth it. If we look forward to verse 11 in the same chapter, it says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. It's this setting forth the path, strengthening the joints that have grown weak and saying, and putting our hands to the plow and not looking back. It's looking to Christ, that beginning exhortation at the beginning of the chapter. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. When you experience difficulty, when you are seeking and looking for healing and transformation, look to the cross. Look towards Jesus to know him. Consider what it means that our God has scars in his hands and feet. That his, he has a wound in his side. It hasn't disappeared The Bible talks about those things being ever-present in the body of Christ throughout eternity. Have you ever considered the implications of what it means that God was injured, was pierced, was killed for your healing, for your transformation, for your redemption, for your forgiveness of sins so that you might have new life? That is radical, right? There's no bigger thing in the world we can talk about than that. The fact that God came close to people who were so undeserving so that he might know us and redeem us so that when we meet Jesus, we're embraced by a God who knows suffering like we do. We're not a religion or a place where you come and we just pretend that everything's perfect and fine. We've got it all together. We come to a place because we're worshiping and seeking a God who knows what it's like, who has an actual answer to what we're going through. And this is, this is so radical. And it's not just in the New Testament. If we turn back to Zechariah and we look towards the end of this chapter... I want to talk about this passage here, chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, I'm going to be starting in verse 10. Let me just tell you, this is like a, I was looking at this passage. This is a passage that so many commentators, people who study the Bible, just scratch their heads at. Because they're just like, what is going on? Because like the text is kind of confusing here. And one of the reasons I think it's confusing is because what it says is so radical. I think that when people were reading this passage, when it was written, were like, that can't be what he meant. 
And so they would make notes or they would try and like adjust a word or something like that. And so it kind of has become confusing over time. But the best uh, manuscripts that we have have this strange, radical hearing, this radical thing that the Israelites would have been like, what is he saying? Start in verse 10 of chapter 12. says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me. Right? This is God speaking. They will look on me, the one that they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly as him as one who grieves for a firstborn. What? They pierced God? When? Right? Grieving for a firstborn. Like the death of a firstborn? Is the passage saying that God died? That's what they would have been thinking. They're like, that can't be what he's talking about. That can't be what Zechariah meant. But it's what's there. And it's what we as Christians know as the crucifixion, know as the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping in Haddon, Rimen, and in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn in each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and the wives and the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives and the clan of the house of Levi and their wives and the clan of Shimei and their wives and all of the rest of the clans and their wives. And then here in verse 1 of chapter 13 says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Right? A fountain opened that will cleanse them of their sin and impurity. A fountain that we would say runs from the side of Jesus Christ on the cross. A fountain of his blood. If we turn back to Isaiah, we see this similarly said there. If we turn to Isaiah 53... Isaiah 53 is such a powerful passage. I'm going to be in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom the people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. See, Christ isn't just a good example. He's not just an example for us to look at and say, he's, uh, he's, he's an example of what it means to love your neighbor. No, he, he's a person who died and rose again so that you and I might have new life. 
so that we might be able to interact with the past with compassion, experience healing in the present and hope for the future, that we might by faith say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. Yes, Jesus, I believe that that is for me, that I am now a child of Christ, that I am united in that death, burial, and resurrection. Not only am I forgiven of sin, freed from brokenness in the past, but I'm also brought back to life into something new, into something that starts now, into something that is eternal, something that is grand and awesome and full of hope. That is the kind of message that we want to talk about here, that we want to be considering with, that we want to be leaning into. I want to go ahead and invite the worship team to come on back up. And we want to be thinking about What does it mean that God has called us to break free from our past? That we don't have to continue the cycles that have happened before us. That they don't have to be predictors of the future. But that God rather is calling us forward into something that's new. That we don't have to just settle. So oftentimes we just say, well, I guess that's the way it has to be. God's calling us to seek him. And he has that wonderful promise, return to me and I will return to you. I want to take a moment and I want us to do some, take some time in prayer. Go ahead and close and bow your heads. Close your eyes, bow your heads. I want to take a moment to recognize that maybe there are things, there probably are things that have been placed onto your heart, into your mind, places where you desire to see and feel and experience God's spirit and God's work, where you want to feel and you want to see and you want to experience God's breaking of the past. You want to see God help you have compassion for that healing, and hope. If you find yourself wanting to surrender to Christ, either for the first time or for a new time afresh, if you want to submit and you want to ask for some healing, I want to just invite you to take your hands where you're at and just lay them open on your lap. Just face them open on your lap. Hold them open. Just in a symbol of just saying, Lord, I want to let go of these things and I want to receive some things from you. Lord, I want to return to you. I'm going to pray a prayer and just let this be a prayer for yourself. Lord Jesus, I want to know you more and experience you more. I want to let go of all the things that I have held on to that have kept me from laying hold onto you. I want to come in I want you to come into my life and bring healing into the depths of my heart. I surrender myself to your holy spirit. Strengthen me to follow you. Lord, I come weak and in need. 
and I come with all of the faith that I currently have, and I ask that you have mercy on me. Amen. Lord, I ask that you would radically honor that prayer. Lord, that you would break down the walls and the doors into people's hearts and into people's lives and into their homes. Lord, I ask that you would do the work that no one can do, no program can do, no book can do. Lord, I ask that your spirit would be about the work of administering the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that you would help us to behold and to see more clearly Jesus on the cross and its implications to us. Might we be a people shaped by that news. People who carry the good news with them. Lord, might we not go a day without looking to Jesus for our strength. Lord, might you break the chains, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the resentment of the past. Lord, help us to see that you are with us even when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, whether we be in the valley or on the mountaintop, you are present with us. You are working with us. Lord, we come to you not with tons of faith, but with the faith that we have. Lord, we ask that you would do something with it. That you would build us up. That you would strengthen our hands and strengthen our knees. That you would help us to lay aside every hindrance. Lord, help us to run and fix our eyes on you. Jesus Christ, I ask that you make this so. Lord, we give, we give you ourselves in surrender. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for coming this morning, Conduit. I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue the work that he has started this morning. Lord, as you guys go forth today into the rest of your week, it is my prayer that you would be reminded again and again of Christ on the cross, of his love demonstrated there for you, and of the redemption and healing that is made possible there. Conduit, go in peace and know that you are loved.